0: Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can find that uh, on page 1131. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The last time I was here, we looked at uh, these opening verses in chapter 1. This morning, we'll be continuing our way through this chapter. Well, before we read, uh, let's briefly ask the Lord's help in prayer. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us now uh, by your spirit and bless the reading and also the preaching of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, our passage begins in verse 18, but we'll begin our reading in verse 10, just to see the issue that Paul is addressing. Beginning in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this is our passage. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. It will help you to keep your Bibles open. It is a long passage. We won't be going into every detail here, but let's keep our Bibles open to chapter 1 as we consider what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Imagine with me that on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, you were a bystander by the cross. You're at the scene. You're standing in the street beforehand, perhaps with your family or your friends, and you see this beat-up man stumbling along with a heavy, rugged cross on his back. And you have to cover your children's eyes because the sight is so horrific. The long end of the cross drags on the ground as Jesus of Nazareth makes one step by step to Calvary. And once you're at the site of the crucifixion, you see this Jesus. And you've heard people talk about him before. Some say he's a blasphemer. Others say he's a miracle maker. Some say he's just the son of Mary. Others go further and say he is the son of God, the savior of the world. But to you, he just looks like An ordinary man experiencing extraordinary pain as he hangs and bleeds from the Roman cross. Some savior. He can't even save himself. And there he hangs and bleeds, struggling to breathe, crying out to his God. Is this a hero or a victim? Is this a winner or a loser? This is the leader of Christianity? People will bank their lives on this guy? It all seems like foolishness, because he's dead. Now, 2,000 years later, many, many people in our day, in our city, in our towns, in our homes even, think the same thing about the crucified Christ— That is foolishness. And yet, some, some believe that he is the wisdom and power of God, the hope of salvation. There are two different responses, aren't there, to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul, this morning in our passage, takes us into the reason for that difference as he addresses the church in Corinth. Here is this broken and divided church in Corinth, with some people boasting in one leader and others boasting in another leader. Mine's better. No, mine's better. And Paul points this divided and boastful congregation to the humbling message of the cross. As he drives home uh, one main point, which is this, that God makes known... His wisdom and power through the foolishness and the weakness of the crucified Christ and his chosen people. Let me repeat that for us. God makes known his power and his wisdom through the foolishness and weakness of the crucified Christ and his chosen people. And he does this so that we will boast in him alone. Let's consider this morning three points. The foolish wisdom of the world, the wise foolishness of God, and the foolishness of the chosen. So firstly, the foolish wisdom of the world. I'm sure you know the phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And it means simply that what is worthless to one person is valuable to another, or can be, at least. But that statement's also equally true if you flip it, uh, flip it and say, one man's treasure is another man's trash. You might have experienced this before. You're so interested in this one thing, or you find it so precious or captivating, and you show it to your friends or your spouse or your children, and for them it's, meh. Yeah, it's okay, but yeah, I'm not that interested It's not that valuable to them. In the same way, to one person, the gospel is a treasure. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. But to another person, that same gospel, that same message, can be a worthless piece of trash. It's useless. It's foolish. And that's the difference we see between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's what Paul says. Look with me at verse 18. He says that for those who are being saved, it is the power of God. But to those who are perishing for unbelievers, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's just nonsense. Why? Because the cross goes against the unbelieving world's way of thinking. Look with me at verse 22, if you drop down there. This is what it was like in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the Jews demanded signs, and Greeks sought wisdom. The Jews, even in Jesus' day, right, wanted demonstrations of impressive, miraculous powers. Take us back to the Exodus days. The scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, Show us a sign, a miracle. They had a picture of what the Savior must be like, that he would come tearing through the skies and come down with spectacular force in a display of indefeatable power. The Greeks, on the other hand, they wanted an intellectually satisfying solution or message from God something that was in line with their philosophy and high thinking. But both of these were worldly ways of thinking because both wanted God to be impressive by their own standards. They wanted him to be in line with their expectations and their wisdom. But neither of them wanted the barbaric cross. And I love how this cross looks because it's not polished and straight. It's rugged in a way. That's what the cross was. It was barbaric. And that was the last thing the Jews or the Greeks or the world expected of God, that God would become a man and that he would die in the place of sinners on a rugged cross. But that's precisely what God did. And in doing so, through this unexpected way of salvation, he destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And he exposed it for what it truly is, fake wisdom. It's fake wisdom. It's foolish wisdom. He turned the tables and showed that the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Congregation, according to God's word, unbelief is not an innocent neutral position. Unbelief is not just another life choice. Should we have Jews today or oh, have this unbelief or belief today? Unbelief is not a neutral position, it is rebellion against God. It's to say to God, Your ways are foolish. And to say, my ways are wise. That's the essence of what the Bible calls pride, isn't it? Pride, when you feel you have no need for God. At the core of pride is the thought that I know better than God. That I am God. I am all wise. I am all self-sufficient. And Paul's showing us that the remedy for this kind of pride is the cross. The wise foolishness of the cross shatters the worldly pride that lies in our hearts and in this world, and it exposes that so-called wisdom as fake wisdom. And so that leads us to our second point, which is the wise foolishness of the cross. The wise foolishness of the cross. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we, says verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Christ crucified. Now, Christ is not Jesus' surname. He's not Mr. Christ. Christ is Messiah. It's the office of Messiah, the one who comes to save as the anointed one. And the Messiah that we preach is not an outwardly mighty Messiah. He's not a philosophically sophisticated and learned Messiah. Rather, he is a crucified Messiah. Christ crucified. And therefore, Jesus is offensive. Over the centuries, the cross has become a symbol of hope and salvation, of love, and rightly so, because that's where Jesus paid for our sins and said, it is finished. But we need to realize that in the first century, the cross, like I said, was not a polished um, symbol of hope. It wasn't a beautiful thing. It wasn't made out of silver or gold. It was an instrument of torture and execution. That's what the cross was. It would be deeply offensive to say to somebody, to talk about the cross with them. It would ruin your Thanksgiving dinner table conversation. It would scar a bystander for life. In modern terms, you might say that the cross was like an electric chair an instrument for execution. And so do you see just how scandalous it must have sounded, how offensive it would have been to hear that God, the creator of the universe, has come as a man and now hangs on a cross, mocked and tortured by men, that it is God who is sitting there with a hood on his head about to be executed on the chair. But that is the Christian gospel, brothers and sisters. That's how scandalous it is. That's how foolish it is to the world. God chose to save sinners through a dying Savior. And not just any death, not a quiet death by poison, not a private death, By disease, but a public, prolonged, painful death on a Roman cross. No one else but the supremely wise God could have thought up such a plan. No angel, no theologian, no philosopher, only the supremely wise God could have come up with this plan. Therefore, let us humble ourselves before this God, before his wisdom and power, as we behold what he has done for us on the cross. Now, of course, the gospel is not actually foolishness. Paul calls it the foolishness of God, but his point is that it looks like foolishness, that it sounds like foolishness. And so we shouldn't be surprised when our neighbors or friends or people that we meet care about the cross, and think it's just ridiculous. You believe in that stuff? We need to admit, brothers and sisters, that the cross looks like defeat. It looks like failure. And it looks like God lost control, that his plan failed. It looks foolish. But to the eyes of faith, to the eyes of faith, in the cross, God's wisdom shines through. Because it shows that God devised a way to forgive our sins while at the same time handing out the right punishment for our sins. Except that punishment didn't land on us, but on Christ in our stead. Jesus Christ is the key to our salvation. You might have heard this a million times in church growing up. But Jesus is the key. He is God's wisdom. And not only that, this weak, bleeding, dying Christ is also God's power. Do you have the eyes of faith to see him as the wisdom and power of God? Through the crucifixion of Christ, God showed that his foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. This is verse 25. And that his weakness is stronger than man's strength. Isn't that a striking image? In other words, God, man's highest, man's best, cannot begin to come close to God's lowest. That's the effect of that verse. God's foolishness, supposedly, is even wiser and the wisdom of men. So here's what we learn from this then. It's that God works out his wise purposes in this world through a weak Savior and therefore through a weak people, through a weak church. Now what do I mean by weak? I don't mean cowardly. I don't mean compromising. I don't mean wimpy. I mean not being strong In the way that the world defines strong, God has not given His church physical weapons to coerce people into faith. He has given us seemingly weak and worthless weapons His holy word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, spiritual weapons. God has not given his church political or military power to conquer the nations and build for ourselves an earthly, visible kingdom. Instead, he has given us the gospel to proclaim to the nations to build a spiritual kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, we don't crush the world with might We convert the world with the message of grace and the cross. And if we're going to be that kind of faithful, weak church, we need to consider, lastly, the foolishness of the chosen. The foolishness of the chosen. Down in verse 26, uh, Paul tells us to think back. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Think of what you were when you were called. And he asks, were you wise and influential? Were you of noble birth? This is the next page. Were you better than other people? And the answer is no. No, you weren't. He says God chose what is foolish in the world, the weak, the lowly, the despised. Those are the words he uses to describe who the Corinthians were. You were low and weak. Now, of course, Paul wasn't trying to offend his congregation members. He was making the point that although they were people of low status in the eyes of the world, although others looked down on them because they weren't part of the elite, God chose them. God chose them in his grace. I mean, when you're playing dodgeball or baseball, we don't have baseball really in New Zealand, but dodgeball, yeah. You pick your team members, and who gets picked first? Who would you pick? The scrawny, you know, someone like me, or the heavy hitter, or the fast runner, right? You pick the best ones, the most skillful ones, the most useful ones to be on your team. Well, God chose to be on his team, the weak, the lowly, and despised. The scrawny, the screw-up. The slowest. Just think about who the first followers of Jesus were, fishermen and tax collectors, women who were outcasts in society. They believed and followed Jesus, while the dignified Pharisees and officials and chief priests despised him on the whole. God chose those who had nothing to show for themselves, and he chose you and he chose me. And he did this before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians chapter 1. But he didn't choose to save you because you were impressive. Because he wanted, he just needed to have you on the team because you're so useful and so faithful. That's not the gospel. He chose you to eliminate all human grounds of boasting and pride. Paul even says, says, it's so that no one may boast in the presence of God. So, if you're boastful, if you're proud that, well, God chose me, then your very attitude is going against God's purpose in saving you in the first place. It's to humble you. It's to give you no more grounds for boasting in yourself. And here we come to the crux of the matter. Paul talks about boasting. You'll recall that the problem in Corinth was that there was a division in the church. People were boasting about certain leaders. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. Well, I like Paul. Well, I'm of Christ. Right? They're divided as a congregation because of prideful boasting. And pride will always tear a church apart. It'll destroy families and congregations. Later on in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul will say this. Let no one boast of men, of human beings. Don't boast in people. Don't boast in yourself. Don't put your hope in mere human strength and ability. Don't give your ultimate allegiance to anyone but Christ. Instead, boast in Christ. Verse 31 in our passage Um, I wonder if we can read that together, uh, out together as a congregation. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In this verse, we hear echoes of Jeremiah 9, where the Lord said this, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, the Lord. So the question is not whether you boast. The question is what you boast in. Okay, the question is not whether you're going to boast or not. It's what you're going to boast in. Because everyone boasts in something. Most commonly... People boast or glory in things that kind of boost their sense of who they are, their identity. Look at my wisdom. Look at my ability. Look at my influence, my contacts, my looks, my riches, my accomplishments, right? But did you notice God doesn't say, don't boast. He says, boast in me. Unlike those who pridefully boast in themselves and lift themselves up above others, God calls you to go without glory, without applause, if that means that Jesus Christ can be made much of instead. The crucified Christ. God calls you to decrease if that means that Christ can increase. Boast in the Lord. In Jesus Christ, who has become for us, verse 30, wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Brothers and sisters, the message is this. Our boast, the thing that we set before others, the thing we regard as the core of our our identity, our boast ought to be Christ. Not our supposed wisdom, but Christ, who is our wisdom. Not our... Own righteousness, our church going and good deeds, but Christ who is our righteousness, not our ability to save ourselves, but Christ who is our redemption and our hope. When Christ ceases to be our boast, we become puffed up naturally because of the seeds of evil that remain in our heart. We begin to think we're something. We begin to boast in other things, other people, like the Corinthians had started doing. So let this serve as a loving warning to us, congregation. To not stray from the message of the cross and the mindset of the cross. Don't forget that we serve a humbled, crucified Lord who wins through weakness, not through force and strength. Watch out for worldly wisdom. Watch out for wanting to be mighty and impressive as an individual or as a congregation. That temptation is always there, isn't it? To be mighty and impressive, strong in the eyes of the world. But Paul points the Corinthians back to the gospel to humble them, And also to humble you and me. Saint Augustine said this. He said, Why are you proud? God became humble for your sake. Perhaps you would be ashamed to imitate a humble man. Then at least imitate a humble God. The Son of God came as a man and he became humble. Even to the point of death on a cross... And he hung there like a fool, like a failure. But it was precisely there that he was defeating the powers of hell itself and securing for his people salvation and redemption. All so that we would boast in him alone and confess that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. Amen. Or well, shall we pray together? <clears throat> Father, we thank you and we praise you for your supreme wisdom and power and love displayed in the crucified Christ. And Lord, since you were pleased to work uh, through a weak Savior, would you work also through us, your weak people? Work out your purposes through this church. Grant that we would go into this new week with the humility of Christ, with the humility of knowing that you chose us not because of what was in ourselves, but because of your grace. Humble us and keep us in that grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.